everybody. It is episode 18 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris. As always, I'm here with Steve. Hey, Steve. Hello. We are today continuing our series on mental training. Today, we're going to get into the weapons, the toolkit mm-hmm. uh, to which you can use to put some of the, the battle plan to work that we talked about in our prior episodes. We'll get to that more in a second. But before we dive in, wanted to hit a couple of things, including some current events. First of all, before we talk running current events, I wanted to share a tweet from our, not tweet, a text that I got from <laughs> a runner who trains from with us who's been listening to the podcast. She said, I was already on the way of converting, but you're succeeding in making me a running nerd, which makes us happy to hear that we're, that we're making some fans out of listeners out there. So we appreciate that feedback. Thank you for sharing. And by the way, it's the least nerdy thing in the world to be a track fan. Just saying. Exactly. <laughs> it's not so bad. Uh, so, incidentally, she also corrected me on my pronunciation of Bowdoin College mm-hmm. that Joan Benoit Samuelson ran at before she won the Boston Marathon in 79. We talked about that on episode 17, part A. So, there's my correction on pronunciation it's Bowdoin College I think I said Bowdoin or something like that I did write her back and tell her that it's a good thing she isn't Kenyan because I've probably been butchering (laughs) those (laughs) names much worse than Bowdoin College but thank you Shannon for that text we appreciate it so let's talk running current events and we're going to jump into a deep topic here one that I know Steve sometimes gets frustrated with me about (laughs) But I feel like there's an elephant in the room, given some recent news in the doping arena that we just have to talk about. And so we're going to talk a little bit about some recently busted dopers and why we should both A, celebrate that and B, kind of fully understand the, those things and what's happening. We'll start with the fact that Shalane Flanagan and Kara both recently, a couple weeks ago, got their medals officially upgraded from bronze to silver. Shalane from the 2008 Olympics, uh, the 10K at Beijing, and Kara from the 10K at the World Champs in 2007 in Osaka. They went from bronze to silver because the second place runners in both of those races, two different Turkish women were busted after their frozen blood samples were retested. So there's that. And then also... Recently, the Olympic gold medalist from Rio in the women's marathon, Gemma Sumgong, was was recently, at least her A sample was tested positive for EPO. They're resampling the B or retesting the B sample to confirm that result. But it's likely that the Olympic gold medalist, Kenyan Gemma Sumgong, will be disqualified from her victory in the marathon from Rio. So a lot happening. Some people might see that and be discouraged. Personally, I'm a little bit encouraged because it means that finally we're starting to make some progress to catch these cheats. It's frustrating that it might take, in the case of Kara, 10 years to get the results rectified, but at least they're still trying to get it right. But a couple of things I think people need to realize about why these things are both important and tragic. And really, if you look back at that 2007 race Kara was battling with Kim Smith and Joe Pavey both from New Zealand and Great Britain 
for that third place spot. Kara ended up out kicking Kim and Joe, who got fourth and fifth respectively. So the real tragedy of that day was Joe's, Joe Paby's result, because she was fourth off the podium, which meant nobody really cared. Yep. For Kara, she was lucky to get bronze. Not lucky, obviously she earned it, but she was fortunate to end up with bronze in that situation because it propelled her career forward in a way that it wouldn't have had she been one spot lower. So Joe Pavey, a great British runner who's had success from 10K all the way up to the marathon, probably lost millions, maybe, you know, at least at least millions uh, because of from sponsorship, prize money, race invitation money. And so her situation is probably the most tragic of it all. Kara recently wrote a blog about this that came out this week. It's on her website, karagoucher.com, if you want to check it out. She said this after the race, or about that race afterwards. She says, my life was a whirlwind after that performance. I had endless interviews and stories written about me. I graced my first magazine cover. I started to get paid really well. I could get into any race that I wanted to run. And not only that, I was given an appearance fee. People in the running world knew who I was. I was no longer Adam's wife, but a distinguished athlete on my own. So that race put her on the map. Before that, I mean, nobody really knows Kara's maiden name. They know Kara Goucher. And largely at the time, we knew Kara because of Adam and his success. This race put her on the map as an athlete on her own, as she said. And it kind of propelled her, gave her that ability to command both in sponsorship money and appearance fees what she deserved. Joe missed out on all of that. Well, and add to it that Joe Pavey is English and the Great Britain Great Britain follows the sport of athletics as they call it over there. We call it track and field much more closely. So the opportunities for her would have been even greater in terms of her revenue generating capacity and her ability to be able to make an impact on her national scene in as an on her international scene, which would give her way more bargaining power throughout her the rest of her career. Right. Um, you know, we don't have the same kind of focal point on track and field in the United States, and so Kara's, you know, third place finish in a ten thousand meter in sort of an a sort of what what many people would consider sort of an obscure. You know, world championships to me is not obscure, but it is to the general running public. I could tell you if I asked. Anybody who runs in my group, very, very few of them would be able to tell anybody where that happened and who the places were. Right. So, but in the Great Britain, there might be an entire, there, there's, there's an entire community of people who are very much paying attention to it, and they are. You, Joe, if Joe Pavey had gotten a, a medal at that Olympics, you would have her name would have been splashed all over the front pages and all over the sports page with giant pictures. So huge, huge opportunity missed for her, not only for her as a person. And and financially, but knowing what the benefit could been to her, the upside was for her being from Great Britain. It's even it's even sadder. It's even sadder. It is. And so you have the financial component, but then you also have this component, which Kara talks about later in her blog. She said, look, I was in a sense lucky. I got that third spot. I earned it. But that propelled me in a way that I couldn't that couldn't have if I was in fourth place. Later, Kara goes on to say, but what it stole from me, what those cheats took from me on that day was my belief that I could win, that I could be the best of the best, or at least some of that belief, 
because as it was, she finished third. I remember an interview after this result where she said she didn't even bring her podium gear or she wasn't even packing it. But then Adam said, no, you got to put it in. (laughs) You never know. Smart man. And so he got her to bring it. It, Otherwise, she would have been unprepared because mentally she didn't believe it was possible. But if she had been second in that race, she goes on to say in her blog, then that would have changed how I thought about my position in the realm of distance running and what could have been possible at least at that time. And so that's what she had stolen from her. And I'm sure Joe at some level had that stolen from her thinking, I'm just not good enough. You know, maybe I'm always going to be that fourth or fifth place person, but I can't compete with one, two or three. And so you're stealing that the dopers are stealing that not only the glory and the money, but also the belief. And that's just tragic to me. But I think what's important to learn as a fan from all of this, one is that you have to root for people even if they don't win. Yes. Know? Because because the stories are as rich and powerful at third and fourth and fifth and sixth place as they are at first, second and third, especially if you think about doping in the context, but even without that. So you have to dig in a little bit. As Americans, we like to sit here and cheer for the winners and cheer for those that are on the podium and a lot of in our culture, a bronze medal is sometimes a disappointment when we're watching the Olympics or something. And we might turn away and, and not look closer at that. But as a fan, we have to, especially as a track fan, you have to dig in, learn the stories, and celebrate the fourth, fifth, and sixth place runners like you might the first, second, or third place runners. That's the first point. And then, and then secondly, to do that, you also have to dig in a little bit and learn what I call the patterns of doping. You know, to me, the reason I can still be a fan is because I can look at these results and sort of pick out the athletes that I trust and believe in. And sure, nobody can know 100% whether or not somebody's clean, but you start to see markers of those things, which then gives me the stories that I can hold on to. Kara's story is one of them. Shalane is another. You know, Meb, and we've talked about Desi, those are stories, Emma Coburn, those are stories, Jimmy, Denny Simpson, those are stories I can grab onto and then celebrate no matter what place they finish because I believe in them. And you, you have to be a more nuanced fan to kind of do that. And I think that's also where this result, this doping positive from Kenya comes in, which is that I tweeted when I found that out, I tweeted, I don't believe in Santa Claus and I don't believe in Kenyan marathoning. <laughs> in Kenyan <laughs> marathoning. And... Some people may say that, well, that's unfair. You can't just take an entire country and say you don't believe in any of those results. And it's not really that. It's that I don't believe that the agents that are in control, both from a pure agent standpoint and the powers that be in Kenyan athletics, are allowing clean athletes to be elevated to positions where they can compete with the best in the world. And so I think the ones that are pushed forward because money's involved are the ones that are in the system, that are taking the, the corners that are cutting. And I think, we'll, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to look back. And again, I don't know this for sure, but this is just my prediction. We're going to look back and we're going to say Kenyan marathoning and maybe even some part of Ethiopian marathoning in the, in the mid-2010s was as bad as cycling was in late 90s, early 2000s because you have a system that, sets up for it to be rampant and that includes runners that need a way out 
from a life that's challenging and really tough, and a little bit of money goes a long way there, from a system that's controlled by Italian agents, Mm -hmm. largely, and we know their track record in history, Mm -hmm. you have a governing body that's complicit because they take bribes. We know now they've taken bribes to conceal positive tests. And we know that there's no testing, at least no systematic testing, because they don't have the funds or the access to do it. So you have this environment that's not monitored, that's controlled by people where money's involved, that know the ways of EPO and these other drugs. And they've sort of found a loophole in the system, you know, where nobody's looking. And as a result, I think those athletes that are getting put forward by these agents to compete in the best marathons in the world or compete in the Olympics are the ones that they know are going to have success, that they know are on the good stuff. And so that's why I think it's likely that all of them competing at the highest level, all Kenyan marathoners competing at the highest level, aren't clean. And so I think when we watch races like Boston, when we watch races like London and Berlin, you have to keep that in mind. And just with the right amount of skepticism, view those results. And also bump up the Americans that might be third, fourth, or fifth. I mean, we talked about Kara in 2009 in Boston, taking them to the edge. She got beat out on Boylston by two Kenyan athletes. Who's to say she wasn't the clean athlete, cleanest athlete that in that race, and yet we don't think about that performance from her like we think about Joan Benoit's or the last American to win because she didn't win. So anyway, that's my soapbox. I'm going to jump off and let you jump in, (laughs) but I just think it's important on these doping issues, not to let it make you a cynic. It's okay to be cynical, but not to let you make you a cynic and turn away, but rather dig in, learn more and really support those athletes that you can believe in. I think that, uh, of the the two cases, well, three cases that that we're talking about, you know, the the cases in the t- two Turkish athletes um, from o o nine to o seven and o eight, um, it's sort of whatever. I mean, I feel really badly for the athletes that did not get their just rewards, um, but we all knew even when those race results happened that they were likely cheating. Um, and certainly after the 2012 Olympics in London, when they went one, two in the 1500, we were for sure. No, we, I mean, I can't say 100% sure, but in my mind, I'm a 95% certain and, and they, they subsequently were busted as well. So, but I think what's really sad to me is some gongs, this, this is tragic for our sport, and I, I actually feel much stronger about it than you do, which is us flipping the Whoa. flipping the script here, because those are my heroes, and those are the people that I've looked up to. I oh, if when I watched, when I when I was a young boy and I would watch the U, the the athletes from the USSR race, I knew there were cheating. There was cheating going on, and they were just the bad guys. It's really hard as a fan to think about the Kenyans as being bad guys. And uh, I know you can't paint it with that sort of black and white brush, but it truly makes, saddens me. Um, My current favorite athlete in terms of watching him run and compete is Iliad Kipchoge. He's a Kenyan marathoner. 
based on the way that you're framing your conversation, he's doping. We have no proof. Would love for him not to be, but based on, and I don't disagree with your, with your analysis and your sort of logic in terms of going that way. But it scares me to, to the point where I say, well, what does it matter at all? If the man who I think is the greatest marathoner of all time potentially is doping, then it makes me really sad. It also makes me really angry because while I, it also makes me really angry for the kind of scrutiny and the kind of grief that Alberto Zalazar goes through now, has gone through for the last four years. Because if he is doping his athletes and those athletes are doping, he's subject to so much more stricture and he is figuring the system out if he is, right? Right. And yet he's still getting painted with the guilty brush and his athletes are getting painted with the guilty brush. Here we have, and now we have this entire culture. We've always known Kenyan athletics was a little crooked, but we didn't know that it was doped. And now we, and we have celebrated the, the ways that we thought that they were better than the rest in the world are just not the reasons why they're the best in the world. Um, and I agree with you. It, it, it's, but I, find, I agree with you that I think now every Kenyan marathoner has to be questioned. Um, I still think if you look at the world, if you look at the world level at the junior level, and when the Kenyans are still crushing, I mean, I don't think the juniors are doping at, at the age of 14 and 16. Maybe they are. I don't know. But they're still so much better than the rest of the world when you see them at the world. You go to the, watch the World Junior Championships. It's, it's amazing the depth that they have. Now, we've, 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 you know, the United States and many other countries have, sh have, brought, have closed that gap when we get to the Olympic and the World Championship level. But at the junior level, we don't really see that. So there is still a little bit of hope I have there that maybe these performances that we're seeing are, are, are still clean because it's possible. But I, this, this test that the woman's Olympic gold medal in 2016 being taken, it looks like it's going to be taken, to me is probably the biggest doping, biggest doping news and the most disheartening doping news I've ever heard, ever, uh, because it kills my view of an entire culture and really jades me. Um, so, you know, there it is. Uh, do I, is it going to make me not be a fan? No, I'm still with you, Chris. I'm, I still think there's lots of great reasons for people to continue to watch our sport and to get excited about races. As I've said many times before, even if someone's doping or not doping, a foot race is still a foot race. We know that the horses at the, at the Kentucky Derby are not clean. I can guarantee you they were not clean. They're not clean horses in whatever way you want to call clean. Right. And we still love to watch a foot race. Right. So I still think we, we should continue to enjoy those aspects, but it is it is just sad for me, and, and I'm sure I'll get over it, and I'll, I'll be excited uh, at Boston, and I'll be excited for London to see what kind of results we get. Um, but, you know, it, it just, it's, it's just really tough to take. One of the implications of this, too, is that Renato Canova, arguably the greatest marathon coach in the world right now, coaches a bunch of Kenyan athletes, Italian guy who came from Europe to do this trained Stefano Baldini, who was gold medalist in 2004 in Athens, beat Meb at the end there. And so I would argue that this is sort of evidence that potentially Meb was the cleanest athlete in that race, assuming Meb's clean, because 
basically what you had happen was you had these Italians as as the news got tightened around cycling in Italy in the mid 2000s it's illegal in Italy to dope athletes you can go to jail in the US you get banned you get you know your medals taken away you might somebody might try to come after your prize money it's not a criminal offense in Italy it's a criminal offense and so as the news tightened around cycling and they started to crack down all these things and people started to go to jail, then they started looking for places to go where they couldn't go to jail. And I think a lot of these guys, Canova being one of them, found Kenya and, and, his, and his Italian agent buddies found Kenya and found this ripe, talented place that wasn't, it was the Wild West and wasn't being supervised and didn't have the same ramifications that they did. So I think it really goes back all the way to then that started to trickle down to where we are now. But all that being said, don't let it make you a cynic. It's okay to be cynical and to question specific results, especially as you see results that seem to be out of this world, like the half marathoner who just ran six, sub 65. Those things, when you start to see performances like that or the Ethiopian woman who won the 10k at the olympics who surged off of world record pace to break the world record by some ridiculous amount when you see those types of results that starts to say hey here's a red flag let's watch this more closely and maybe look back in the results and see who we can celebrate it also actually does make me have a little bit of sympathy for salazar even though i'm not a salazar fan at least in the context of his coaching now with Rupp and what he's doing with that group and I do am I am a skeptic that they're fully above board but you can see how it happens right For sure it's like you start to realize if you're a coach at that level that if I'm going to compete with people that I know are cheating then I have to bend the rules as much as possible to my favor and that's essentially what Salazar has tried to do is skirt the rules as closely as possible and I think he probably believes he's done everything perfectly technically clean but he's clearly skirting the limit as much as he possibly can using therapeutic use exemptions and and doctor prescribed thyroid meds and stuff like that that are quote unquote legal, but starting to push the boundaries of ethics, perhaps. But you can see how he got there because he's saying, look, if I want my athletes to compete with the ones that aren't being monitored, that aren't that are basically free to take EPO if they want to, then I have to do this. So I kind of get it. It does make me sympathize a little bit with that position. I mean, there's a very unpopular argument that goes, open it all up, no testing, take whatever you want. Right. Um, like bodybuilding basically did. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's moments like these that I say, let's go that route. Um, because there's just no way you're going to be able to crack, to, to, to pay the money to find the money necessary to crack down on this problem in the way that it needs to. Um, but, but I understand that at some level, but at the same time, then it, it opens it up to one, the fact that some people respond better to drugs than others. So sometimes, you know, talent and hard work aren't just then variables. It's also how well do you respond to the, to the good stuff. And then two, that it just puts athlete safety at risk. Because it then becomes who's willing to take the most risk with their lives. I mean, cyclists died because 
their blood, hearts exploded. Of blood transfusions because yeah. their blood was essentially too thick <laughs> to process through their heart mm-hmm. and their hearts exploded. So putting athletes' lives at risk, I, I just can't go there. The other thing that makes me say we can't go there is because, look, the IAAF and Kenyan Athletics, they've been looking the other way. They've been this is true. letting it happen, essentially, knowing this stuff exists. I mean, do you think it's any coincidence that these results are testing results are happening 10 years after the fact? Of course not. They no. have the ability to test for these things right after these meets. And so now they're sort of catching people here and there to show that, hey, we're doing something when they really had the ability all along but they didn't like the marketing aspect of a doping positive, right? So they kind of kick it down the road far enough until they're willing to let it out because then it's kind of too late and nobody cares. And so I really truly believe that if Sebco and the IAAF really wanted and WADA really wanted to do this and crack down, they could. I also think that there's events now that have power to do it. Some gong was caught not by an IAAF or Kenya Athletic Program. She was caught by the World Marathon Majors Testing Program, and she's actually currently leading the the list there for the big prize money in the World Marathon Majors. But they started their own testing protocol to try to make sure their results were clean, and that's what caught some gong. So it tells me that there are races that can now have the power, especially in the marathon, where there's really, what, four, five, six races that matter. And there aren't... And there it's it is uh, you can really selectively choose who to go yep. after. So the costs are not as prohibitive as the costs are to test at a at a, at a track and field championship. Right. At and they're controlling meet. who's in the race. I mean, New York decided a couple years ago before even the Olympics banned Russia, they decided not to invite any Russian athletes to their race because they said we can't trust them. And so you have the ability for races like that to say, look, we're not inviting Kenyan athletes to our race until you can prove that you have a protocol in place to check for these things. And so to me, that would be my approach. Instead of just saying, look, anything goes, it's saying, it's switch it around and say, look, I actually don't care about catching dirty athletes. I'm going to assume they're out there. What I do care about is identifying clean athletes. And if I'm a race like New York or Chicago or Boston or Berlin, I can do that and say, look, we're only going to choose the athletes that we believe in. And in order to be in our race and have this, the big prize available, you have to prove to us that we, we can believe in you both by one pledging that you're clean and two submitting yourself to enhanced testing protocols that uh, the IAAF or athletics Kenya or even Yosada wouldn't do. And if you can do that, then it starts to change the conversation a little bit and it puts pressure on these athletes to start to come into line. So I think there's things that can be done. And I just, I just want to see the IAAF. I want to see these races crack down in real ways because I don't believe they have to this point. Yeah. I'd love to see IAAF do it. I don't have any, don't have any confidence that will happen, but I do have a lot of confidence that the people, the groups that are paying out these exorbitant sums for the people who win the races need to protect their money and be sure that the if they're using if a brand is using someone's race result to market their product and that is a and it's tainted they have a really big vested interest in being sure that it's that they don't support those athletes that 
could taint their product. And so I think it's that's the power. That's that's the real. Yeah. That's where the that's where the leverage comes in. And I agree. And I want to make sure it's clear that everybody heard. I didn't say I am <laughs> pro no testing. I I just understand exactly right. how you can get that way. Um, I think that. Uh, and I will continue to operate in my viewpoint that when the gun goes off, everybody is, is clean um, and it's innocence till proven guilty. But now I have big questions about one of the most important countries in the world to distance running, the distance running's results. Yep. And so be a fan still all the way to, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 deep and support those companies that are fighting the good fight. Companies like Wazell, New Balance, there are companies out there that are doing their best to put clean athletes in the front of their logos. And there are companies that aren't doing as much. So support those companies that are. All right. That was 28 minutes of my soapbox. So I need to <laughs> apologize in advance for letting that go too long. But I just had to get it off my chest, especially given the recent events. Hopefully we haven't lost everybody already. But let's jump into our topic. So we're continuing our series on mental training. We started this with episode number six, where we laid out our mental training framework. We're using a warrior analogy for this. Then we drove. Then we dove into the first two episodes, talking about essentially creating your own battle plan or blueprint, so to speak, for how you approach this. Episode eleven, we talked about motivation and purpose, and in particular, how do you define for yourself why you run. And we have an exercise associated with that that we encourage you to do. Episode 13, we went through visioning and goal setting and talked about an exercise for creating a vision board for yourself. Now, we're on to episode 18. You don't necessarily have to have listened to those to listen to this, but we do encourage you you go back because particularly 11 and 13, those are foundational elements to this work. You can't really get the benefit of the tools and the weapons that we're going to talk about today unless you've done the prep work. So, yeah, you can use some of these in isolation, but they won't be as effective as they would be if you'd gone through those exercises we laid out in episodes 11 and 13. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some tools you can start to use to train your mental engine, some weapons as we call them in our analogy, and we're going to talk basically through five examples. This is going to take a couple of episodes because we've got more tools to lay out for you. But we're going to talk about five potential tools to start using and you know, the reason behind them and how to, how to practice it and that sort of thing. And then we'll hit our next episode in the series and talk about some more of those. So we're going to start today, Steve. And before we dive into the specific tools... I want you to set some context for our group in terms of the types of things we're going to be talking about here and why they're important. So these are what I would consider the really, truly practical applications of much of the stuff that we've already talked about. This is the the other parts that we talked about. They have practical application, but they're far more philosophical and big picture sort of viewpoints. Um, this, I agree, Chris, that it's best to listen to those two episodes, but I think of all the episodes we're going to do, these next two that we're going to do on mental training are the easiest to cherry pick from. And I encourage uh, folks to um, maybe bookmark this episode in a way that allows them to come back and maybe focus on one or two of these first five that we talk about and then maybe come back to this in a couple of weeks when you've got a little more window of time and then hit maybe a couple others because it's going to keep 
We're going to be talking about a lot of meaty stuff, but it's really practically applicable. And it's stuff that people can do immediately, instantaneously, that will make very big changes into their in their racing in a short term. Um, it's the most practically applicable stuff that we're going to be talking about, I think. Yep. Um, and so, therefore, I think it's, uh, it's really, it's, and each one can be, can live on an island. Some of them connect to each other in, 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 in more obvious ways than, than others, but ultimately they can all, fo- all five of these and all, all of the 10 to 15 of these we're going to talk about over time, they really are the ones that can stand on their own the most. So I highly suggest this is one that you can come back to a couple times and get a lot more information from as you go along. And we're going to talk about five of those tools today, but I think the practical reality is you can't work on all five of these things at once either. So assuming you've done your homework, you have your purpose, you have your vision, and your goals are ready, you really probably do want to cherry pick a couple of these to start practicing and see how they manifest within the context of your running before you just go out and try all of them because they do take practice. So the first one we're going to talk about is self-talk. We've talked about this being cheesy along our journey through mental training this one i think people might look at just like the vision board say hey that's cheesy but talk about self-talk and positive self-talk and how people can use this to prepare themselves mentally so i think this is um we're using this one uh as the first one because i think it is the the most instantaneously and practically valuable tool and it's also also putting it first because it's also the hardest to do. So basically, let's give a little definition to self-talk because I think it's kind of important. I think people will think, I don't know that people really know exactly what self-talk is. It seems self-evident, but I'm not sure that it actually is. So a de- working definition I'll use for self-talk is, is the verbal and nonverbal conversations that you have with or about yourself consciously and subconsciously. So that's pretty beady, right? But basically what I'm saying here is, we talk to ourselves, we are going through mental chatter all the time. We aren't even conscious of probably 70 to 80% of the conversations that we're having with ourselves. And we have no idea that this entire subtext is going on behind the scenes. Um, occasionally when we have serious stress or serious drama or, or have a very a failure of, of a magnitude that makes us check will sometimes say, oh, I suck or I'm terrible or I'm, I'm horrible. And we'll be, wow, I shouldn't talk to myself that way. But many people, and I think this is most people, are not checking their self-talk. They're not looking at what they're saying to and about themselves. And so they're allowing a complete a resource that can completely change not just their running but their entire lives by consciously focusing on this one tool we all self-talk period every one of us from looking at yourself in the mirror at any point in time wondering if you someone saw you pick your nose um thinking about if you're singing in the car and if somebody could actually see you singing in the car mount you know lip syncing in the car <laughs> these are moments where you might occasionally get conscious of the fact that there's a roll a tape rolling inside your head talking to yourself about yourself but until you start to put get clear on it i think um frequently most people are doing are saying negative things, especially in our Western world where we're very hypercritical of ourselves. Um, It happens to the best of us, I must say, too. So I think some people think they might be immune. They think, well, I have a relatively positive view of myself, so I'm immune to this or I don't need it. Bullshit. Right. And I'm someone (laughs) who is generally pretty comfortable in my own skin and, and a pretty confident guy. 
But I must admit, I've recently been struggling with this and realized the dialogue in my head around my running has turned a little bit negative because I broke my elbow four weeks ago, haven't been able to run. I've missed five months out of the last 12 because of injury. And over the last few weeks, I've noticed myself, the, the dialogue in my head turning negative to the point where, and, and I'm aware of it, but it happens all the time. And a lot of times it happens subconsciously where I'm thinking, well, fuck it. Like, why am I doing this? <laughs> like, I don't want to rebuild again back to where I was a year ago. So why not just, like, I'm getting old, give up. Like, there's no point to this pursuit of getting faster. And so I found myself slipping into some negative self-taught myself in the last few weeks. Point being, it can happen to anybody and it's happening to everybody. It is. And I think that that's key here is that, um, you know, it, I think another thing that's really hard about this is hard to, f- to fix. In your case, Chris, the fact that you became aware of it means that probably 70% of the conversations you were not conscious of that you weren't aware of were negative before you ever got to that point. So you don't even really know how long this pattern has been going on. Um, and listen, folks, this is, this is really probably the most important and critical far-reaching mental weapon that we're going to talk about. And it's also the hardest. And let me tell you why it's hard. There's a lack of recognition. We don't even know what's going on. That's the first point we've been talking about. Number two, we don't like to change. As much as we know change is required, it happens to us. There's always change. There's ebb and flow in our lives. We still don't like it. None of us, opt, none of us say, "Hey, throw some change at me." I'm really looking for some change here, right? <laughs> unless we're having, a, unless our lives are in absolute misery mode. In that point, you know, you you do get that that movement. But it's really hard to change. It's really you don't, people don't want to change. And finally, it's just really hard work to do some of the stuff that I'm going to ask you to do, to actually track your thoughts and to work through what's going on in your brain. At first, it can be, number one, it can feel really cheesy. Anybody who's no Saturday Night Live and Stuart Smalley um, standing in front of the mirror telling himself, well, golly, I like myself, right? You, there's, that, there's that challenge, that hard work of it sort of getting over that sort of cheese ball factor. But also, it, it's hard to see ourselves in this light. And so, but if we're, if, but think about it, if you're constantly feeding, if you had a child that was constantly feeding themselves negativity and you could walk in on them doing that, you would stop it immediately. But yeah, we're not stopping that in ourselves because we're not aware of it. So, so what would you, what would you have them do? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to stop the negative chatter, right? So the most important thing there is being aware, as we just talked about, you need to know what's happening in your self-talk. And so my suggestion there is to, is if you're into doing some work on this particular uh, skill set, um, either either start writing down a few things that you find in yourself say, especially the negative stuff, but be aware of it and see it and hear it. Um, and then that's a first step is just be starting to pay attention. And it'll be discouraging at first because freq- as you found out, Chris, as you said, <laughs> it's a little bit, you're like, that's not me. That's not how I roll. Well, it's, about 70% of how you roll, whether you know it or not. And so, because we're all insecure, um, so it's hard to look at. But if we just get aware of it, it'll make a big, big difference. So um, you have to see that there's a problem there for you to actually understand the extent of your of the problem. So then the next step is, okay, pay attention, be aware, but then start, when you have a negative word come into your mouth or in your head, can't, won't, recognize it, 
and see it, right? So, and, and try to stop doing that. Eliminate negative words from your vocabulary will do a whole lot of good here because you're going to basically take, in the next step will be take that negative word and reformat it. But we're not going to worry about that right now. I just want you to notice that there's a can't or a won't in your vocabulary. And one of the really most powerful things that you can do to really help this is when you find yourself saying a negative word or you find yourself going through some negative thought, say to yourself, cancel, cancel, <laughs> like literally, like, a, like you are a, 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 a computer because this is what it is. You're softwaring, you're, 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 you're creating the software that's going on that your entire operating system is running on. And when you find that you're doing something inappropriate, you need to stop doing it. The best way to do it, and literally talk like a robot. I mean, make it a <laughs> robot thing. Cancel, cancel, cancel. You don't have to say it out loud, but say it in your head. You'll laugh, which immediately puts you in a much better frame of mind. And a sense of humor is always critical in all these endeavors. But you'll also begin to start to understand more and more that positive thinking can help and how much negative thinking you're doing. And it will help you basically, I don't know how to say this. It's like you'll, you'll start retraining yourself to be a positive thinker by checking your negative thoughts. So the first thing you can do, stop the negative chatter. The best way to do that is cancel, cancel. Seriously, sounds cheesy. It'll work. I promise you it'll work. Next thing you want to do, um, and this is, this is the part that is going to be the hardest part. This is the Stuart Smalley part. Is start with some positive affirmations, right? We talk, many of us at Rogue, we talk, our coaches, all of us talk about creating mantras for our athletes when they go into races, which are short three to four to five syllable sort of positive statements about what's going to happen in their race because we want to get them patterning positively and moving into that zone. But I think that this same idea of positive affirmations or mantras on a day-to-day -day basis is the best way to start this software retooling of our brain. Of our brain. So that's sitting down and writing down some kind of positive affirmation about yourself, about your running, um, or about life in general. And start with one or two or three. Don't make it too big, right? Just one or two or three. In fact, if you want to be really impactful, make a commitment to doing it for one, one positive affirmation that you can get behind that doesn't feel totally cheesy for one week. Repeat it morning and night and then as many times as you can remember it in between. And do that for one week with one statement. Then the next week, choose a different statement. On the third week, choose a different one. On the fourth week, choose a different one. By the time that you're done with one month of work at this, yours, you will have changed the software in your brain system. You will be operating on a different system. Um, and we have to kickstart it somewhere. You have to put it in somewhere and writing these down and then reading them to yourself once, twice, three times a day for a set period of time is just about the only way to sort of kickstart this plan. Yes, it's a little bit weird and it is a little Stuart Smalley and standing in the mirror and looking at yourself talk, but I'm not asking you to get in the mirror. I'm just asking you to sit down, write down something that means something to you, and then work on that affirmation. One, seven for seven days, another for another seven days. Within 28 days, you've got yourself a really good working position to actually jump off of for the rest of self-talk. You will be re-patterning that mental framework. And it sounds cheesy, but I but I would ask, what do you have to lose? <laughs> I mean, what's, what's so bad about looking yourself in the mirror and saying something positive about yourself? Because it could only have benefits. The other thing I would say is that as you go through that process of journaling and identifying the negative things you're saying to yourself, 
also try to understand the triggers associated with those, whether they be scenario scenario related or whether they be other people related. Because sometimes there's people in our lives that trigger these things because either they're negative or they give off a certain vibe or maybe they remind you of a certain situation. And so identify those triggers and then use the self-talk, especially in those situations to kind of for sure win them so to speak even if it's just repeating something in your mind or try to avoid those scenarios altogether and maybe choose to avoid certain people if they're the ones that are starting to bring you down or have been bringing you down yeah you've got to replace negative influences with positive ones um and this is the hard part this is the part of change that many people don't want to do but um honestly you've got to take a good look at the circle of people around you especially those who are closest to you and and in our area we're talking about especially for running Check the culture of the people that you run with on a consistent basis. If you've got folks who within those, run, those runs are being negative, you need, to, you need to get away from that. You don't need to be in a place where you're actually now stepping out and doing the actual physical work to train yourself. You'll be getting more mental positivity. You'll be, be doing more, chan- more patterning of what will happen for yourself in a race on those runs because you're moving through space actually doing it. It's really important to check that to check who you're running with and how you're running to be in a positive space. Okay, so you have affirmations repeating to yourself daily, once in the morning, once in the evening at a minimum. Where do you go from there? So, you know, first you're trying to reframe the entire concept and then you need to actually kind of step back a little bit more and get big picture. And what I like to say is, what is the, we want to start creating a positive script. And this is going to get into a topic that we're going to talk about in just a little bit more about visualization. So I don't want to spend too much time with it. But I do want to make sure that people understand that sort of creating a positive script is telling the story that you want to tell about yourself and making sure that that story is positive. Um, the most practical way to do that is through visualization, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But I want, I really think it's important at this point to talk about, it's one thing to take affirmations, which are short. The other thing is what's a bigger picture. And that's sort of the way you're framing your constant conversation with yourself. You got to get rid of the negative things as we talk to, whether the negative influences or the negative thoughts in your head and stopping that negative chatter, putting positive in. But you've also got to tell a bigger picture of your story. And that's what kind of going back to, knowing your purpose, this, that can really help with that. It's one way to, to pull that in. Um, one of the other things that's really important when we talk from, a, from the, in the area of kind of affirmations is also being sure that we're in a present tense with the messaging that we're giving to ourselves. Um, worry is a huge problem for self-talk. Worry is some kind of, it's thinking about a future event that's not here. One way to short-circuit worry and constant worry, which will create an incredibly negative feedback loop for yourself in terms of self-talk, by choosing to be present tense in the messaging that you're giving to yourself will sort of help you bypass this idea, this, the concept of being always thinking about the future. And the one thing that I can ask you to do, so you want to ask yourself, what can I do right now? Um, so... If you're in that space of saying, you know, I just don't feel like I can get my running back to where I needed it to be, you can say, well, you can recognize that as worry and say, so what can I do right now to change that? There's something you can do. Today, Chris, I know in order, right before we did this podcast, you went to PT and got seen so that you were doing some proactive step right now that is going to, and if you keep that in your mind as part of your 
self-talk of the way that you are communicating with yourself, both in the small, short affirmation and the bigger picture sort of scripting story that you're telling, and you keep it present tense, you're able to stay in the moment and control the thing that you can. You've heard, many people have heard me say many times, I don't believe in the future. I've never been there. Right? I can conceive of my past because I kind of know I've been there, but the future to me is it, I just I just I'm not there. I understand the need to plan and, and, and set things up, but I'm never in the future ever. And so this present tensing and I think that I'm a luckier, much happier and very much positive person a lot of times because worry doesn't come into my space very often because I'm constantly saying what's going on right now. So those of you who are worry warts and have a tendency towards this, one of the things you can do when you start to feel worry, you say, what can I do right now about this? If you can put yourself into the present tense, put yourself in the present moment, then create a message that goes around that present moment. You're going to be way far. You're going to be so much further ahead because you're going to be in a very positive place. And it could be as simple as repeating your affirmations instead of thinking about whatever you're worrying about. When I was in seventh grade, I was a high achieving student, but extremely anxious. And I worried about everything because I was, I wanted to get A's. I wanted to do well in school. I don't know where that pressure came from. It wasn't coming from my parents, but I was putting it on myself. And I got to a point where I kind of had a little bit of a breakdown at seventh grade because I was just trying to do too much. And and somehow this tool came to me that it's like, okay, well, I was laying in bed. I remember distinctly laying in bed, crying about stressing over homework or something silly from school. And this thing came to me. It's like, can I do anything about it right now? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, go do it. If the answer is no, stop thinking about it and think about something else. And so that tool came to me and, and I've been using it ever since. And now I'm actually a pretty laid back guy who doesn't worry a lot. But it took practice. For sure. Because you have to face those situations and then be able to make the right choice of either doing it, doing and acting or really letting yourself let that go. I mean, it's and, and I think that that's so key, Chris, is it's an action. Right. And some of the other things that we've been talking about, they're, they're, they're sort of in the mind. But this is one that's actually action. So and it says to myself, what do I what can I do right now? Go do it. And in the context of running, to me, it's even easier because we're talking about things that matter, but aren't life and death. And oftentimes it's really easy to identify things to go do. Like if you're worried about being able to run your goal time in a race that's coming up, what can you do? Well, you can go study the course map. You can go plan logistics associated with that day. You can visualize, as we'll talk about in a second. There's lots of things you can go do. You can go for an easy run if you need to do it that day. So what we're talking about, you know, there's a lot of ways to easily identify actions that can take you away from that negative worrying energy. But, you know, Chris, I think the next point I want to make really ties into the story you told about being seven years old and, you know, seventh grade, seventh grade, sorry, and, re and recognizing that worry was killing you. The worry was based on fears. Confronting your fear is what you basically did at that moment. And while you did it by saying, what can I do about it? You have to face the fear. And in running, this is especially true. I think the huge majority of people not having success is really a sense of fearing that they won't be able, they don't want to take the chances because you're, it puts you in a vulnerable place and it's, you're not very secure. Um, 
And yet, we know in our in racing in, at, at any level, you've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be on the edge of what you can achieve in order to have something amazing happen. Um, and whether that's in an 800 meter race or 5K race in a in a marathon, you've got to be able to face those fears and take a step by step approach to confronting them. And the first thing you do is you write down what you are afraid of. Number two, what can you do about it in that moment? Sort of refer- talking about what we talked about. Create some positive affirmations about how you can do those things. So I could have talked about confronting your fear at the front of this, but everybody goes, oh, it's woo-woo and it's, a little, and it's too much, it's too much. What I'm saying is we just gave you four or five different steps to take. Now you're ready to confront that fear and be in a position to step-by-step dismantle the bomb from going before it goes off. And I think when you're able, when you've got these other tools of being able to stop the chatter, having the affirmation, sort of knowing your script, um, and, and, and talking about things from a present, in a present tense way, honestly, those, it becomes much easier to sort of deal with that scary, those scary things about what your, where your fears actually are. Um, so then in the context of self-talk, what's, What's the practical application? I, you identify, you write those fears down, and then create what affirmations that you defute. You say to yourself that fear is based on what? What can I do to over? What can I do to not have that outcome? You know, you've got to go back and say, I'm afraid of an outcome. If I'm afraid of an outcome, number you. One thing you can do is realize failure. The the best thing you can do is realize that failure is success. Um, and you need to fail in order to succeed. And then, then fears become less, less overwhelming. Um, that's a switch that some people can flick and some people can't flick it. Um, they turn that on or off. But I do think that being able to take the step of writing down what it is that you're afraid of, sort of, it's like looking at the boogeyman. Boogeyman is usually a bump in the night. The bump in the night is not usually a demon. The bump in the night is a window being open and a, and a, and a tree scraping a window, and, and you think that that's something worse. Right. You turn your light off, you go investigate. You, you, if you've got a fear, you turn the light on by saying what that fear is, writing it down, and then investigating how you can overcome it or whether it's even really real. And, and then, going in through these pos- then going through these steps of the positive affirmations using a, a, a scripting or a visualization protocol to help you overcome that. But... I don't think you should go about just facing your fear first, honestly. I think the best way to do is go through the steps that we've already talked about, stopping the chatter, creating the positive affirmations, go through that week, that month-long process of creating this new software system that your, that your, op, that your brain is going to be running on, and then you're much, you're much more capable of sort of looking those fears in the eye and recognizing them for what they are, which is probably much less real than you might have thought they were if we'd started from that position right i think a lot of people are afraid in the context of running of disappointing other people or somehow letting other people down which you know after a race if somebody has a bad result you always see this massive outpouring of love to them so it's clearly not real but it's real when you're facing your start line so let's use that as an example like how could somebody dissect that fear and try to work through it? So number one, you would want to be able to, first of all, say, who is it I'm letting down? Because that's the fear. So pinpoint them, put their name on paper. If it's more than one person, let's say it's your training group, just write training group, put it down. And then look at that and say, 
Are they really let down? Investigate it. Turn it over. Turn it on one side. Turn it on its back. Turn it on another side. Investigating, you'll find that you will, while you have that fear, it's a worry more than it is a real thing. And if you think you're going to let them down, ask them if you are. If my athletes, I actually put pressure on my athletes before races frequently and say, I'm watching a result and your result matters to me to the point that I'm going to actually keep a win-loss record. <laughs> and uh, and so I know my athletes are going into races with more pressure and more stress necessarily than they need. But I also know that they know that I care for them and that I want the best result for them and that I will still be there for them should they fail. And so my guess is someone who is in a position of wondering who they're going to let down. I think going in through and writing down the people that you're actually letting down you're going to realize really quickly none of those people either, A, you can't let them down. It's your running, not theirs. Or two, um, there's, there's, it doesn't, they don't really give two farts about <laughs> what you actually do. They just want you to be generally happy. So, you know, what I'm saying is that's diffusing that bomb. And it's like looking at it, writing it down, you're able to go through the steps for what that Another is. Another way I would tell someone as a coach to diffuse that bomb is to say, is to reframe it and say, what if instead of letting them down, what if you inspired them? Mm-hmm. Because most of the time we look at the negative outcomes and focus on that. What if you had a great race and you inspired them and then they had a great race as a result of that? Or what if you didn't have a great race, but you gave it everything you had and people knew that and, and you, you know, you left everything out there on the course and then that inspired them to do the same in their race. Well, think about the number of people that I know that you inspired with your performance at Boston last year, which I'm sure you would say is one of the worst experiences you've ever had in a race ever. But yet I know for a fact that three or four people that I know of have told you how meaningful it was for them that you made it to that finish line. And I know because you and I have talked about this, how difficult it was to make it to that finish line. And you were thankful that people had put you on the line to do that. (laughs) One of them being the guy you're actually talking to (laughs) right right now. And so, you know, you never know how you're right. I mean, reframing and flipping that script in terms of saying how that might be inspiration is an incredibly smart way to do it. And a great thing, a great aspect, uh, a great way to look at it. So let's let's go to visualization because these two things do dove well, dovetail well together because, you know, I always say if you're worrying, if there's nothing else to do, you can visualize and visualize success, visualize achieving that goal. And visualization is, an, is something I use a lot personally. It's a tool where basically you're trying to run the race or do whatever activity in your head, in advance, experience all that you could experience in a positive way and maybe in a negative way and work through it in your head so that when you get to that moment, you've done it before and it's not unfamiliar. I always, for people that look at me funny when I talk about visualization, I always talk about Aaron Rodgers. He's a guy who a couple years ago after a playoff game, he threw this insane (laughs) touchdown pass, you know, where guys... He had to get it in over two players, and the receiver's tiptoeing on the line, catches it for a for a critical touchdown pass, and somebody asked him afterwards, how do you prepare for a throw like that? And he said, I've thrown that throw in my head a million times before, so it wasn't a big deal to do it in the game for me. And that example from him, <laughs> you know, one of the most <laughs> talented NFL players in best, maybe best quarterback besides Brady out there in the game today. 
uses this tool. And so why can't I use it for me? And so we'll talk more about what that looks like, but it's essentially going through the process of, in the context of running, running your race in your head before you do it. So Chris, tell us what steps you take or that you'd suggest to our listeners in terms of the visualization protocol, because I know from my personal experience, this, this is, this is the biggest challenge I've had as an athlete is, is getting over the, the cheese ball first. And then number two, just having the discipline to step through it. So I'm sure that discipline as almost all other things is about having steps and processes. So tell us a little bit about what steps you'd suggest for our runners out there, maybe from your own experience or from the experiences that you've suggested to other athletes in terms of real practically, what, what is the, what's the nuts and bolts that they're going to be trying to do? And how does that, how does that change over time maybe as well as as a second part of that question? So first thing is you have to prepare, like we've talked about in a lot of these things, you have to be ready to do it. Part of being ready is knowing what outcome you want to visualize. So the goal process that we talked about and the vision process is important in the context of this because you got to know what you want to visualize. That's one thing. The second thing is you have to do your homework on what you're visualizing. You need to be able to understand the nuances of that race. And I'm not just talking about what you will see. I'm also talking about what what you will smell, what you will hear, what you will feel. And so for me, if I'm going to a race that I don't know about or that I've never been to, then I will spend time, one, researching the course, understanding what the elevation looks like. I even did, when we did, we went to Martian a couple of years ago, I did the, I drove the entire course on Google Maps <laughs> before I ran that race. And, you know, you talk to people that have run it review review the course find out as much as you can about the event so that you know what things you should be visualizing because for me it's important that your the images in your head match what will actually happen and if you're wrong if you have the wrong idea in your head it's not quite as effective when you get to actually delivering so if it's boston and you've never done boston listen to our podcast talk to people that have run boston go to the course read up on the course, do everything you can to get as much information as you can about what you're about to do, and then go into the process of visualizing. And for me, I like to to break it up into chunks. This process usually starts for me about two months before my goal race. Before that, I don't like to think about my goal race because it's too far out. Mm-hmm. I, might get, I might start getting too anxious. But what I might start doing a couple months out on a recovery run when I'm on my own is pick little bits and I'll start small and so that you can kind of wade into it and maybe not bite off too much at once. But I might simply in the course of a run that might be, you know, an hour, spend five minutes, two months out visualizing getting to the starting line, just simply getting to the starting line. What's that going to feel like? What am I going to be worrying about? What am I going to be driving if I'm driving or if I'm on a bus? What, what's that going to be like? And just dissect every bit of minutia, both in terms of what you'll see, who you'll interact with, but also what you'll hear and smell. Will it be loud? Will it be quiet? Will there be smells? Will there not be smells? Will I 
be cold or or warm what will i be wearing you know if i'm going to start line with gear check how that how's that going to play out and and literally just dissect kind of in your mind's eye play out you walking through that scenario as if you're wearing a visual a virtual reality goggles but you're doing it in your mind's eye and a lot of that stuff seems silly it's like well why would you care about visualizing that that has nothing to do with the running part of the race but what it starts to do is it gets you comfortable with that experience so when you get to it you have fewer nerves you're less kind of anxious or freaked out just like hey i've been here i've been in this spot in my head and so i'll start there with little chunks and and then i'll do maybe the next run a different chunk of the race maybe after the start after the gun goes off what that's going to be like and then I'll choose another part of the race and visualize that. And so I'll visualize the race in segments first, kind of walking through it from start to finish. So that's the next step. It's like just chunk it up. And it doesn't have to be super rigorous. Sometimes if I don't want to do it, I don't do it. But I've given myself a couple months to do this, so I kind of do it in pieces as I feel like it. Sometimes I'll sit there waiting to get my hair cut and do it, you know, in a free moment where I have a chance to daydream you know, while I'm sitting and waiting for something. And so I'll do the race in chunks first. And and I'll do it playing out the way I want it to, as if everything's going smoothly. So that's how I'll, be, how I'll start it. Then the second step is going through it and doing it in chunks, but adding adversity. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about problem solving in a second, but but I will write down things that could go wrong, from either from my experience or things that I'm worried about. For Martian... One thing I was worried about because I knew I was going to be running with teammates was what if one teammate falls back or one teammate goes off the front of our little group? How do I handle that? How do I think through it mentally and react in the moment? So I'll start to write down those things that could happen and then I'll visualize those things happening at various points in the race and, and visualize my response. Then as I get really close to the race, I'll actually take the time to visualize everything from start to finish going well again because I want to want the last experience to be as complete as possible and and have it end with my goal time on the clock feeling how I would feel as if I was achieving it and that can take some time that's where you have to allocate you know maybe an hour Mm -hmm. to go through it laying down Allison told me she used to do this in high school laying down her coach made them do it laying down on an empty classroom where he would actually give them verbal cues to help their visualization, but they would do it for an hour at a time as a team before cross-country meets. And so you can do that. Just lay down for me. Sometimes I'll just be laying in bed on a morning when I don't have to be up for something or, you know, on a on the couch, you know, on a slow Saturday afternoon. But give yourself time and quiet to do that and visualize the whole thing. And in that experience, you want to overcome some adversity. You want to kind of face some of those challenges you've previously visualized in snippets, but then ultimately see yourself crossing the line, it, you know, having success. And so that's that's sort of my process. Start with research, then go to and do it in chunks, then visualize those chunks with some adversity, and then come back and put it all together with one complete visualization where you have success. So it sounds like... You also have been giving yourself, it sounds like when you're starting with that sort of low-hanging fruit of getting yourself prepped for the starting line, that's something almost anybody can do without a whole lot of stress. Right. And, and you can sort of 
you can sort of get better at this as you go. Your practice is by having that amount of time in advance to work on your visualization protocol, you're allowing yourself to sort of mess it up a little bit, not get it quite right, but to practice and to practice it in small chunks that are manageable and easy to do. I really love the idea of your visualization early on happening while you're running because it's so sensory, can be so sensory specific. And, um, you know, frequently when I was a young boy, I would run, when I would run, I would visualize just to finish, just to finish, just to finish. And I began to work much harder on visualizing the beginning because that's where all the stress was happening. So, you know, your, your patterning there early and then often allows you to number one, practice it, to, to, to screw it up a little bit or to try to get it right. You've got enough time. Um, and then also that's the part of the race. When the gun goes off, we're not usually very nervous. <laughs> Nervousness right. has, has been minimized. So that's a really great way to look at it. And, you know, most people's per training protocols are about eight weeks out is when they're really starting to do the real work. So you're timing these sort of visualiza early visualization steps at a time when it's really really about go time in yeah. terms of specificity for your race. And that's when I allow myself to start thinking about it because before that I might think about it and I sort of push it away. It's like, mm -hmm. you know what? It's too early to get amped up both from a training standpoint, right? It's like you want to, at that point in your training about eight weeks out, that's when you start to gear down. That's when you start to get really specific about pacing. That's when you start to on the margin, choose the edge versus backing off. Right. Mm -hmm. And before that in training, i when I'm on the edge, I choose to back off. It's like I always kind of err on the conservative side until that point. But that's kind of that turning point when it's time to both amp it up from a physical training standpoint and a mental training standpoint. A couple of pitfalls I want to talk about too here. One is that you get distracted. Because there are times when I start to do this and my mind won't let me. You know, like it'll turn to something else. Or I might even be visualizing and then not realize it, but start thinking about something else, go off on a tangent. And early on in this process, that's okay. That's part of the reason why I start so early is because if my mind isn't quite right for it to happen, it, it'll naturally drift off. I don't necessarily have to kind of let it. So if that's happening to you early on, that's okay. Just come back on your next run or maybe later in the run, start to start to pick it up again. But don't force it because I think if you force it, then that creates negative associations with your visualization, which you don't want to do. Now, there's a time later when I think you need to be a little more rigorous about it. And that's when I think you kind of have to schedule like that, that end visualization where you're trying to do the whole thing start to finish. You need to kind of plan that and schedule it a little bit and try to take stress away from it so that you do have the ability to focus. And then for that one. Again, you may still struggle with distraction, but that's when you can use things like breathing, some of the typical meditative kind of tips to get yourself refocused. If you focus on your breathing first, focus on clearing your mind, then go into it, that allows you to have a more thorough and kind of clean run at it versus if you jump in in the middle of something when you're already distracted. So those are a couple of things. The other thing I would say is that when you get to race day, it's possible something happens that you didn't visualize. This happened to me in my current marathon PR race where I went into that race training for the Dallas marathon and 
Dallas was frozen. <laughs> the race was canceled. We couldn't go there. We ended up getting into the BCS marathon the same weekend, kind of in a last minute change of plans, literally that Friday before the Sunday race. And suddenly all the visualization I had done was completely thrown up in the air because I knew Dallas well. That's where I grew up. I knew that I knew that course like the back of my hand. I'd done all my mental prep work on that course. All my race planning on that course. And then suddenly it switched to a race I didn't know in a city I've never really spent time in. And with all sorts of logistics getting thrown up in the air. We went from driving to Dallas <laughs> on Friday to not being able to do it to driving to be, you know, to Bryan College Station on Saturday. And I remember sitting in the hotel room before that race trying to wrap my head around a new plan. We actually got there early enough that Saturday and drove the course. Mm -hmm. So I had the ability to drive the course and kind of start to create some new visuals. But I was sitting there watching Texas play Baylor in the Big 12 championship game that Saturday, looking at the BCS course map and my Dallas race plan, <laughs> trying to create new visuals in my head to prepare for this new situation which I didn't I hadn't planned for and I really struggled with it really struggled I mean I probably spent three hours with a foam roller that day working the kinks out but also mentally just battling kind of trying to get in a new mental groove and I finally got to a place there where I I realized I couldn't there was no way for me to get to the same place I was in preparation for Dallas because I didn't have the information then there wasn't enough time so I kind of just let it go. And so then I showed up on the starting line just saying, look, I just need to get in a rhythm, focus on getting in a rhythm, following my plan in essence, but focusing on the effort versus the paces and let it go. And fortunately, I got to that place because that race started with a challenge that I hadn't prepared to face either, which is that the, my first miles, first five miles were terrible. <laughs> I remember seeing you. Yep. <laughs> and you told me this later, not in the moment, but you told me you, that I looked like shit. Yes, you did. <laughs> at that at that first point, I think I saw you around my full mile four or five, and it was a cold morning. I couldn't find a rhythm. I was battling everything. And so finally I got to a point in that race where I just kind of let go as well, and I just said, look, I just need to focus on relaxation and breathing. And if that doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And so that's what I did. I kind of went into this meditative state running that then allowed me to find a rhythm by mile eight. When I saw you again, it's like I was a different runner. And then I ended up running to a PR that day, you know, getting the 245 time that I wanted. But I had to do it in a way where I was reacting to something I wasn't prepared for. So that's the other thing with this is that it's possible that something happens to you on race day that you didn't visualize, whether it, it's the logistics and lead up like with my switch from from Dallas to BCS or if I faced a challenge that I wasn't prepared for and then be ready to deal with it. So it's like when you're visualizing, also visualize dealing with an amorphous <laughs> challenge that, you know, might not exactly have shape in your head. It's like, what are you going to do? What are, what's going to be your fallback? And for me, it was focus on my breathing, try to stay as relaxed as possible. I went back to that. And that's a, a visualization technique that you can practice at any point in time. And it's one that you can have, like we talked about with mantras before with, with, with the affirmations piece, it's something you can work on in advance and have a go-to relaxation visualization protocol that helps you. So knowing that's something people can work on at any point in time that doesn't necessarily have to be visualization 
from a specific standpoint, yep. but visualization from a much more um, sort of holistic standpoint of how can I help diffuse stress in a scenario where things are unknown. And that's something folks can work on consistently um, at any point in time. And a lot of that is breathing exercises, which we'll talk at some other point in time about. And, yep. um, but yeah, it's really good stuff. Really good stuff. So we got through two weapons today. We're now in 15 minutes in, so we got to stop. <laughs> we had aspired to five. We got through two. It happens. But I think this was all good and important stuff to get through so bear with us folks as we dig through this we'll come at you again with another episode where we start to continue to walk through these weapons hopefully you learned something today a couple things as we close out episode 18 number one please if you like what we're doing give us a review on itunes that's really helpful for us and also give us feedback if you have it generally either through the review or contact steve or i through rogue because those iTunes reviews are important as we're trying to get listeners and continue to spread the rogue, running rogue love. So do that for us. And then also, of course, if you're interested in learning more, check us out at roguerunning.com or on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Rogue Running. We'd love to have you join us in training or maybe stop by the store if you're listening and you're, jo- and you're enjoying what you're hearing. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Later. <laughs>